Alright, hello everyone, and welcome to the first 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast of 2022. You know, I didn't personally think there was a whole lot of demand for a sequel to 2020, but here we are. Okay, my bad jokes aside, <laughs> uh, I, you know, let me do the, let me do the normal intro first, and I'll get into stuff. Uh, my name is Robert Winfrey. For those of you who might be newer to the program, uh, I'm your host. This is your mostly weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I say mostly because we're coming off of a two-week stretch without a show, and I need to issue a bit of an apology for that. I said on the last show of 2021 that I was going to try and get one out for the first week of this year. That obviously did not happen. Uh, For some reason, uh, that stretch between uh, Christmas or so and like the first five or six days of January, that just kind of ruined me. Uh, It kicked my butt, man. I was in a pretty serious brain fog for a lot of it. My sleep schedule went just completely down the toilet. Uh, I got mad at a movie. For those of you who listen to my movie reviews, and I thank you for that. Uh, The Damn You Hollywood for the most recent Matrix movie. Uh, I don't get mad at movies uh, very much anymore. That takes a lot. I'm not emotionally invested enough to provoke genuine anger and i don't care much the matrix franchise is not a sacred cow to me so i i have to imagine that my sort of general mental health uh, was a part of the reason that that movie i came down as hard as i did on that movie and if you've listened to that review i stand by everything negative that i said about it but i think some of the delivery uh was influenced by that and i got up that sunday uh you know, the second, and I was just, I was not in a position to really kind of record a, a, a podcast, so I just wanted to apologize. I said I'd try to get something up, and I just, uh, everything kind of went downhill for me for that little bit of time. So, but now we've got more stuff to talk about, and it all seemed to break over the last week, so I... I didn't miss much of anything by not doing it then. We had a lot of stuff come out recently, so we've got plenty of stuff to talk about today. Uh, Starting with a preview for this upcoming event, UFC on ESPN 32. For the second year in a row, Calvin Cater kicks off is the first main event for the UFC for the year. Hopefully this one goes a little bit better for him than the last one, because yeesh. Uh, For those of you who don't remember, he... Uh, was in the main event against Max Holloway at the fir- for the first event of 2021, and Max put a historic beating on him. So, we'll be have a full preview of that. Then we have stuff. I'm going to take a quick look back at 2021 in some respects. Uh, my full, li- if you're interested in my full thoughts on you know, my year-end awards, there I have written uh, I've written them up. They're in the MMAZone411Mania.com. I will briefly go over them here, but I get to wax a little bit more poetic in my prose when uh, about some of those. So if you're more interested in that, go over there. Now, again, I'll touch on them briefly here. We have a bunch of fight announcements because the UFC is trying to fill up their calendar as we go forward. Some good, some bad, some weird. Uh, yeah, and a few other bits of news. So we'll get to that when we get to that. All right. Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's everything for the preamble. So, 
let's jump into this. Uh, first show of the year. So, fittingly, let's start with the UFC's first show of the year. UFC on ESPN 32. Your main event is a darn good fight. Calvin Cater, I already mentioned him briefly, against Giga Chikadze. Uh, this is probably going to be a striker's delight. Uh, both men are predominantly strikers. Giga, a fairly decorated kickboxer. Cater, obviously, a very his uh, fighting style is very boxing-influenced. They'll have five rounds. Should be a lot of fun. Cater's a slick boxer, but he can take a little bit to get going. And his legs are vulnerable. Uh, Max Holloway got him with some good kicks, and Max is not an especially notable kicker. I mean, he uses them and he uses them well. Uh, but and I, again, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say anything bad about Max Holloway, but he's not an especially devastating kicker. He just knows how to use them to set up the other things that he is that he prefers to use. You know, be that uh, his boxing, his uh, ways of getting into the clinch. He was kind of he was perpetually disrupting Cater with this really nice little um, kind of a step through sidekick into the knee and the hip. It was a good way to close distance safely. Uh, just a really nice little technique that he was using. And so he, he uses them. But he's not a very devastating kicker. By contrast, Giga Chikadze is a devastating kicker. So I I wonder how Cater will be able to deal with that. Cater's not quite as lead leg heavy as other uh, heavy jabbers are in MMA. But it's still... Unless you're doing like the worst jab possible where all your weight's on your back foot. Uh, you've just got to shift at least some of your weight forward when you jab. Uh... Unless you're doing real loose, flicky stuff, which certainly has its place. I don't mean to imply otherwise. But you, you it's one of the ways you can kind of deal with a good jabber in mixed martial arts, or kickboxing for that matter. It's one of the reasons the jab isn't quite the same type of weapon in kickboxing that it is in other striking sports. Because if you get too heavy on that lead leg, and the other guy happens to kick you there, it really sucks. I think if the, the the longer this fight goes, the more it might skew towards Cater. We've seen him over five rounds, and Max beat the crap out of him. But his cardio never quite abandoned him, so much of the accumulated damage is what kind of did him in down the stretch. Uh, by contrast, you know, I don't think we've seen Chikadze over five rounds. No, I don't think he's ever... He's been scheduled once, when he fought Edson Barboza in August of last year. They were scheduled for five. He stopped him in the third. He's gone three plenty of times. Uh, and his kickboxing record... He's gone... Uh, kickboxing's a little bit different because they have three-minute rounds. But they tend to have more more of them. You, so... He's gone deep before. He's not gone deep in MMA. And that, there's a difference there is kind of the point. Uh, have we seen... I don't think we've seen Cater since the Holloway fight. No. And look, man, after that kind of a beating... Uh, if he took a year off, hey, good. Uh, I'd rather he took the time to properly heal up after that than try to rush himself back. Uh, I... I think highly of Cater's abilities. He's fairly well-rounded, uh... He doesn't use a lot of his takedowns, but they're there. 
he'll surprise you with them. He's one of those guys who, uh, he's not alone in this. There's other people who do this too. The first one they hit you with is really good because you're not expecting it. But once you get a feel, once you start having to recalibrate, their subsequent takedowns become a little bit less effective over time. Uh, so we'll have to see how uh, Giga's takedown defense is. I mean, look, Cater might decide to just strike with him the whole time. I tend to favor Cater, and there's a pretty specific reason for this. Most of the time, when you get into these kinds of fights, Cater uh, likes to be in boxing range. Giga wants to be in kicking range. And it's just a little bit harder to perpetually force things to be in the boxing range than in the kicking range. It's... I just... Uh, it should be said, it's not impossible. And the very best are very good about smothering that distance... Uh, I've talked about Max Holloway already. Holloway's real good about going from kicking to punching distance. Uh, Volkanovski, I'm talking a lot of featherweights here. Volkanovski's another one who's really good at that. You know, finding the right distance where he wants to operate. I think Cater's going to struggle a little bit with uh, the kicking game of Chikadze. Both men are kind of switch hitters. But I think Giga's a little bit better uh, out of either stance. I think when Cater goes southpaw, he still does a lot of the same things he does when he's orthodox, but his defense is a little bit not quite as good, and his body's... This might be the big thing. Uh, anytime you really kind of start throwing at Cater, he does kind of the high guard uh, shelling up, which is a perfectly valid defensive technique. One of the problems, one of the vulnerabilities, I need to phrase this carefully. There is no perfect defensive posture. There can't be. Especially not in MMA where there's so many legal targets. So when you use a high guard, it exposes the body. Now there's still reasons to use the high guard. When you use you know, something like a Stonewall or a Philly shell, your head's exposed. Now, there's other things you can do to defend it. Now, these are all give and takes, and it's just trying to find what works for you. Having your body exposed against a guy like Giga Chikadze seems to me to be a very... Uh, that's a dangerous habit to have. Uh, he's really good about digging body shots. So I'm going to lean towards Giga Chikadze here, but this is a very, very good fight. I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, the rest of this card, well, well, uh, oh, we lost some good fights out of this. I'm just looking at this. Um, dang it. Uh, we lost Muslim Salikov and Michelle Pereja. Uh, that sucks. Um, what about it? I hope they're able to reschedule that. That's a darn good fight on paper. Most of we lose. We lost Joaquin Buckley and Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Uh, they might just be trying to move that to another event. That's a pretty good fight. Ashley Yoder and Vanessa Demopoulos. Eh. Hansen and Jasmine, uh, Jesse DeVisius. Jesse DeVisius. Where's that? I'll look that up later. Um, that got moved to UFC 270. This is a light card. Uh, this is a real light card, just in terms of... How many fights are on this? Hang on. 
that one might. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's sad that we've reached a point when I look at a fight card with 11 fights and go, that's light. But since the UFC has been trying to cram 13, 14, 15 fights on some of these, well, here we are. So the rest of this card is, is going to go a lot faster. I don't have a whole lot for some of these. Uh, co-main event at the moment, Caitlin Chikagian and Jennifer Maya. Battle of two women who were soundly bested by Valentina Shevchenko. Chikagian's won her last couple of fights. The key eyes in this fight are going to be just... Yeesh. Uh, Maya coming off of win over Jessica I. Mm. Okay. Here's the thing about this. Both of these women do the thing in women's MMA, one of the things in women's MMA that I really don't like. And there's a lot, this is not to say that women can't fight, I need to say that. But if you look at women's MMA as a whole, there's a few patterns that have emerged, some of which have been broken, some of which will break over time. Uh, but watch a, watch a women's MMA fight, most of them, not all, but most. Anytime they're striking, Everything has the rhythm of pads being held. We start outside of range. We step into range. We fire the three, four punches and a kick. And then we back up and reset. And then we come back in and we do the same thing. That's a little bit... And that, and both of these women do that. Uh, Chukagian's a more dexterous kicker than Maya. Maya's a more powerful puncher. Neither one of them is especially defensively... Uh, spectacular. <sighs> Maya hits harder. I'm going to lean towards Maya, but that's a lean. Uh, I I don't feel terribly solid in that pick. Flyweight, good fight here. Brandon Royval and Rogerio Bontarin. Uh, Royval, he's on a two-fight losing streak. Uh, he got stopped by Brandon Moreno. No shame there. Your current champion. Then he got tapped out by Alessandre Pantoja. I think that's the fight where he had the arm issue. Um, unless I'm confusing Royval for someone else. What did he train out of? Trains out of Factory X. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm thinking of the... Yeah, he... Um, he had a nice guillotine on Kai Kara France. He had a good 2020, actually, now that I look at it. I mean, he capped it off by losing to Moreno, but... Uh, I'm pretty sure it was in the Pantoja fight uh, where he separated his shoulder or something. Uh, and... I mean, he still got tapped out. Like that, that's The fight wasn't stopped because of the injury. But the injury uh, fall was certainly part of what happened there. Um, or was that the Moreno fight? It was one of those two, forgive me. Um, it might have been, now that I think about it, it might have been the Moreno fight where he just got pounded out, but his arm was all jacked up and he couldn't defend himself. Uh, either way, he's got great scrambles. He's great about grabbing necks. Uh, he's a little bit sloppy in the striking, but he's got decent power. He's kind of a, a rangier guy for flyweight. And Bontarine, uh beat Matt Schnell. That was a bantamweight, though. Uh, let's see. Uh, Bontarin's another very, he's a very good grappler, too. This, this has some potential. 
I feel like logically I should pick Bonterine. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to pick Bonterine, but I anticipate some crazy scrambles in this one. See, heavyweights, God help us all. Jake Collier and Chase Sherman. Oh, God. Why? What did I do to deserve this? Okay, that's a lie. I know what I did. Oh, man. This fight sucks. Uh, Collier coming off of a loss to Carlos Felipe. That fight was pretty darn terrible. Uh, Jake... Chase Sherman... On a two-fight losing streak. I mean, I might give you the Arlovsky loss, because Arlovsky's kind of su surprisingly hard to beat. But that loss to Parker Porter was a bit rough. Um... I can't pick. I'm not going to pick. Look, you know who loses that fight? The fans. That's who loses that fight. Um, pro if I have to pick one of those two, probably Collier, believe it or not. I don't think Sherman... I just think Sherman doesn't fight in an optimal fashion for his skill set. Uh, he, he winds up gassing himself out a bit too early. Uh, featherweight Bill Algio and George... Uh, excuse me, Johnderson Brito. Joanderson? I'm going to have to wait till I hear someone pronounce that guy's name, so I apologize for if I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, in the dark, this is a fairly easy pick for Algio. Um, Algio's only 1-2 in the UFC, but his losses are to uh, Ricardo Lamas and uh, Ricardo Hamos. So I think he's he's a bit more proven at this level now, Look, Brito might surprise a lot of people, might, you know, me included, but at the moment I'm okay leaning towards Algio. So that's your main card. As for the prelims, we have Court McGee against Ramiz Brahimai. Brahimaj? I can't remember how they pronounce that. I'm going with Brahimai because I think that's how I've, I recall them pronouncing it. Um... I've said this before, I'm a bit sentimentally attached to Court McGee. I, before he got to the UFC, I watched his fights because he fought at a, uh, at a local promotion here in Utah whose fights would air at like uh, 1.30 to 2.30 or so in the morning on a local television that I got, whose feed I got with rabbit ears. If you, God, I'm so old. <laughs> um... So I, I've watched a lot of this guy's career as far as that goes. So I've uh, I've got a soft spot for the guy in some respects. He's coming off of a pretty good win over Claudio Silva. Um, boy, Silva's one of those great what-ifs. So much ability. Um, but it's not active enough. Uh, Brahimai has shown some pretty... Logically, I should pick Brahimai. Let me just put it like that. I'm pro I'm gonna if you want to be smart about it go Brahimai if you I on the rare occasion I allow myself to drift into sentimentality I'm gonna pick Court McGee because uh, because I'm occasionally stupidly sentimental featherweight Gabriel Benitez and T.J. Brown um, Benitez had some had some momentum at one point in time. One and three in his last four. He got stopped by Billy Quarantillo uh, July of last year. Hmm. 
Brown, by contrast. Uh, finally got his first win in the UFC in May of last year. Um, hmm. I I think I'm going to pick Benitez here. Um, this is a closer fight than you might think if all you looked at was your UFC experience levels, but I'm, I'm going to lean towards Benitez. Lightweight, Dakota Bush, and wow, I'm going to butcher this gentleman's name. I apologize in advance. Um, Vyacheslav Borshikov? Borshikov? Borshchechev. Borshchev, sorry. So, Vyacheslav Borshchev. Uh, and I'm just going to wait until I hear the more proper pronunciation of that and just apologize for my terrible understanding of certain Slavic names. Uh, once I hear them a few times, I got a good feel for it, but uh, trying to pick them up off the page, you know, there's too many slight derivations between different countries. So, I apologize for being, for my terrible pronunciation. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, Borschev here. Yeah, Borschev. Why did I make that harder than it needed to be? Oh, well. I I'm going with Borschev. I'm I I'm just never been all that impressed by Dakota Bush. Bantamweight fight. Brian Kelleher against another... God, I apologize. I need to know where this guy's from. Hang on. I have the, I have the wiki up for the list of I think, these things most of the time, but... Certain people don't have wiki entries, so in that case, I need to go to Tapology and find where this gentleman is from. He is from Uzbekistan. Assuming I remember the flags correctly. Yep, that is the Uzbek flag. Uh, this is Said uh, Yorkub Kakramanov. I think he's fought in the. I think he's, this isn't his UFC debut, right? Right, right, right. He beat Trevin Jones. Hmm. Uh, huh. I think I'm going to lean towards him. Look, I, I like Brian Kelleher. He's not an easy out by any stretch of the imagination. But Kelleher is, at this point, just kind of a journeyman in the UFC, and that's not a that's not me dumping on the guy. He's a, he's a smart guy. If you've ever seen some of the interviews he's done uh, or things like that, he's well-spoken. Uh, I just... I think he's where he is right now is more or less his ceiling. I uh, would love to be proven wrong, but that's that's kind of my read on things at the moment. And I think Kakramanov might have a slightly higher ceiling. So I'm going to lean towards Kakramanov, but uh, that's not a bad fight. That's, that's, that's got some potential. Uh, and let's see. There, we have one fight announced here that we don't have a bout order for yet, a middleweight fight between Jamie Pickett and Joseph Holmes. Uh, I think I'm going to lean Pickett here. Let's see. A quick look at Holmes. Uh, Pickett just got his first win in the UFC. Assuming this fight's still on. Yeah, Holmes. believe this is his UFC debut. It is. He's on a seven-fight winning streak. Pretty big step up for Holmes, though. I don't know. That's a that's a tough one. Probably lean towards Pickett, actually. Uh, yeah. 
I'm gonna lean towards Pickett. And at women's, at strawweight rather, excuse me, I don't need to say women's strawweight, there's no male strawweight division to potentially confuse things. Um, Silviana Gomez Juarez will fight Vanessa Demopoulos. Uh, Gomez Juarez is Nicaragua? Argentina. Yeah. Uh, she's fought in the UFC before. She got submitted by Lupita Godinez. Uh, let's see. Didn't look especially compelling for as long as that fight lasted. I think it's not like Demopolis was uh, burning down the house exactly when she lost to J.J. Aldridge. Um, I'm actually going to pick Demopolis here. Demopolis is a bit more of a uh, grappler, and Gomez Juarez did not... That looked to be a bit of a vulnerability for her, so... That's my logic. Could be horribly wrong when when the two actually fight, but that's where I am at the moment. And that, as it is all that currently stands for UFC on ESPN 32. Again, we had a lot of fights fall through or get bumped around, but there's some gems there. You got a really solid main event. Royville and Bontarine has some potential. Uh, Benitez and Brown might be pretty good. I'm actually really looking forward to now that I've kind of talked myself into it. Kelleher and Kakramanov, uh, I'm kind of looking forward to that one. So, should be a pretty decent fight night. Could be. Uh, the UFC always tries to get their... Now, their bigger event is, of course, next week with UFC 270, and we'll talk about that next week when on the program when we get a full breakdown. Uh, but they try to throw something out there for the first card that kind of gets people going. And they're not burying this thing on ESPN Plus either, so. Uh, eh. The main event's pretty... You know, I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, th this ties in a little bit to some news we're going to talk about in a bit. If, if Giga Chikadze is able to win this in relatively quick fashion and come out unscathed, he might be in the title... He might be in the sweepstakes for a title shot. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about the featherweight title situation in a minute or two, but, uh, that's something, I think that's part of the reason the UFC hasn't really settled on who's replacing Max, uh, because if Giga Chikadze wins, just throwing this out there, if he does, and if he's able to make a turnaround in a timetable that the UFC is happy with, uh, none of which is, none of which is given, but he would be undefeated in the UFC. Uh, he would be... Let's see. When... Good grief. He went 4-0 in 2020? Good for him. I forgot that he was that busy in 2020 is all. Um, he went 4-0 in 2020, 2-0 in 2021. He's finished his last three opponents. If he finishes Cater, especially after Max couldn't, now, that's not at all to say that uh, all those things are equal, because Cater's now carrying the added weight and wear and tear of the abuse Max gave him, but still. You could really make that case that he should get the shot. Just throwing it out there. So, uh, he, he might be fighting for an on-deck title shot kind of thing. 
I will have coverage of that over in the MMA zone of 411mania.com per usual. If you would like to stop by and say hello, I appreciate it. Uh, okay, let us move on. Do, what we, okay, we'll do this one next. All right, uh, let's talk very briefly about the year of 2021 in the MMA sphere. Uh, this was the most successful year financially for the UFC ever, I believe. They put on a lot of shows. They made a lot of money. Uh, and we had some quality fights over the course of the year. Um, so I can briefly go through some of my... I don't, there's some year-end awards that others do that I don't. Uh, some that I do that others don't. One in particular. I think this is the only one that might be unique to me. But a few when I started doing the year-end awards as just myself, you know, back years ago in the glory days, uh, the year-end awards were you kind of were what a lot of year-end awards are for websites like 411. They were collaborative. Everybody who is in the position gives their list, and then you tally up the different points for the different slots, and that's how you kind of come up with the ending. Um, once the MMA zone kind of started losing contributors, I just I didn't want the year to go, the year end stuff to go unmarked, so I just did mine. And I decided that I wanted to have, I call it the Ian McCall Memorial Worst Luck in MMA Award. Because the, the first year I gave that out, I did give it to Ian McCall, because that man had been on an epic, like, multi-year run of the worst luck you could imagine. And it culminated with him... Like, finally fighting for the first time in years. He was fighting in uh, Ryzen. And very shortly into the fight, he goes for a takedown. And Ryzen, if you don't know, uses a ring instead of a cage. So you have the, the kind of the boxing ring setup. And as he was going for this takedown along the ropes, he sliced his forehead, uh, he sliced his head or his face, I forget exactly where it was, open on the ring ropes. And the fight had to be stopped because of it was such a bad cut. Just, you could not have worse luck than that guy. Uh, I mean, he got screwed out of potentially fighting for the first UFC flyweight title. And I don't say screwed lightly, but for those of you who don't remember, the first UFC flyweight title was was done in a tournament st style. You had Joseph Benavides and uh, Yoshi, um, Yoshihiro? The last name was uh, Urushitani. On one half of the bracket, you had Ian McCall and Demetrius Johnson on the other. And Benavidez made, made fairly short work of Arushitani, but when Johnson and McCall fought the first time, they went the distance, and it was originally announced a split win for Demetrius Johnson. There was a, there was a math error. It should have been a draw. Now, this is important because... In the, in the format that they had, if you had a draw after three rounds, you would go to a sudden victory fourth round. Winner of that won the fight. And if you watch that fight, um, Demetrius Johnson is struggling in that third round. That's the round that uh, McCall wins. And you could argue he won at 10-8. And I wouldn't disagree with you all that much. So instead, they had, instead of getting a fourth round with a slightly fading Demetrius Johnson... They had to rebook the fight, which they did, and the, DJ won the rematch pretty handily. And, of course, Johnson would go on to his you know, epic uh, world title reign, but 
if the commissioner, if the judges and whatnot and the commissioners in Australia have been able to do math properly, the landscape could look very, very different in the history books. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so I gave that, so he is, I named the award after him. Uh, and I gave it once again to Leon Edwards in 2021. Not, you could argue there were other people who had, had bad luck. There were, you know, Chris Weidman, uh, I talked about Weidman and, uh, what happened to him when he fought Uriah Hall and the aftermath of their fight. And what kind of crazy, crazy situation that was. Uh, you could, t- Hadi Barcelos had a lot of bad luck this year. Uh, losing a, sp- losing a majority draw that, uh, a majority decision that really probably should have been a draw. Uh, to end his winning streak and then having a bunch, he had a bunch of fights fall out before that and then several after, including one the day of. I went with Edwards for a second year in a row. He got my, he got the award in 2020 for wholly justifiable reasons. He finally ended his long layoff and in his first fight back he looks good in the first round really good in the first round against Bilal Muhammad then we get a no contest after the eye poke uh, renders Muhammad unable to continue so your your big fight back where you're supposed to remind everyone that you're a legitimate title challenger you don't actually get a you go to a no contest then instead of fighting for the belt which he should have by the on a meritocratic standpoint he gets a bigger put air quotes around that, I suppose, if you want, uh, fight with Nate Diaz, where he pretty handily beats up Nate Diaz for four and a half rounds or so, and then late in the fifth round, Diaz lands a punch that badly wobbles Leon Edwards. And this is all anyone remembers from that fight. They don't remember what Leon Edwards did to win the first four rounds. They they just talk about, no, you know, if that was... If there was one more round of that fight, Nate would have won. And yeah, you get those people. So, again, he loses momentum and is not given a shot in the title picture, which he should. Instead, he's given a bigger, air quotes if you feel so inclined, fight with Jorge Masvidal. And then Masvidal has to pull out of that fight with an injury to close out 2021 for Leon Edwards. The man, if it weren't for bad luck, he'd have no luck at all. So he got my award a second year in a row for that. Uh, let's run briefly through these from the, so there's that one. Again, I just, that award amuses me. That's kind of why I do it. Uh, worst fight of the year. There were some bad fights last year. My worst fight of the year, however, bit of a toss up between the main event of Norma Dumont and Aspen Ladd from UFC on ESPN plus 53 which ultimately came in second, to Cheyenne Bays, now Cheyenne Vlismas after her divorce, and Montserrat Ruiz from UFC on ESPN 21. Oi. That fight sucked. Uh, sucked out loud. Uh, let's see. Breakout fighter of the year. Honorable mention to Manon Foyreau. Uh Let's see. Top spot goes to... I debated on this one, too, and I'm still not sure I got this right. Top spot went to Juliana Pena for beating uh, Amanda Nunes. I don't do upset of the year. If I did, her win over Nunes would be the top spot. I think mathematically it was, certainly from some of the intangibles that don't go into purely the odds it was. 
but she went from essentially a fighter who fought, you know, once a year, give or take. I mean, 2021 was the first time she fought twice in a calendar year, almost since her debut. Like, it was kind of ridiculous. Uh, but you know, being the first person to beat Amanda Nunes in you know, almost a decade, Nunes had the belt for five, almost like five and a half years, almost six, was it six and a half? Five and a half, I think. I'm going to go with that. Uh, somewhere around six years. I'll, I'll split the difference. Somewhere around six years. Being the first person to beat her, uh, really big deal. And she did it on a big card, too. You know, that was a that was a fairly well-received pay-per-view in terms of financial returns. Uh, submission of the year. A lot of great, great submissions last year. Uh, ultimately, I went with... You could you could chalk up the top two and go back and forth on these. A lot of people went with Andre Muniz's armbar against Jacare, where he broke his arm, uh, which I I don't object to that at all. Being the top spot, it's great. I went with Anthony Hernandez submitting Adolfo Vieja because Hernandez submitting maybe the one of the best jiu-jitsu practitioners of his generation in, in the form of Vieja. I mean, Vieja's a multiple, multiple-time world champion, Gi and no Gi. And tapping him out with the seated arm triangle, I'm just, I just steal John Danaher's name for that move. Uh absurd uh, you could see it coming a little bit because Vieja gassed himself out pretty badly in the first it was still shocking uh absolutely shocking but like I said if you flip flip flop those two I don't object uh knockout of the year I mean there's so many man there's so many beautiful knockouts last year uh I mean, you could take my top five, completely reorder them, and get a perfectly acceptable list. You could throw in some of my honorable mentions into that, take some of the other ones out, reorder it, and you'd still have a perfectly acceptable list. A lot of high-quality violence. Ultimately, my top spot goes to uh, Corey Sandhagen's flying knee against Frankie Edgar. Maybe because I'm a bit of a nerd. But... The way he hit that flying knee and then continued on past Edgar as Edgar slowly fell down, it just... That's the kind of thing you see in... I mentioned this when it happened. You see it in, you know, uh, old samurai movies uh, or uh, you know, various anime properties. Like, the two swordsmen square off apart from each other. They clash through each other and they both just kind of stand there still for a few seconds. One of them probably monologues. And then the loser ultimately falls over. That's as close as we're going to get to that in real life. The way that went down. It was just just a thing of beauty. But there's any number of all kinds of other ones you could put there, and no one would object. Uh, my fighter of the year was Kamaru Usman. You could put Charles Oliveira here, and my only counter-argument is number of fights. Usman fought three times, won three times. Oliveira only had Two fights. I want to make sure that's right, actually. I'm 90% sure. It'd be really embarrassing if I was wrong about that. 
Uh, yeah, he only had the two fights. But he won the vacant title for Michael Chandler and then defended it against Dustin Poirier. Like, I, I don't object to Oliveira getting the top spot. Uh, but for me, Usman, three title fights, three title wins, two violent stoppages, too. I mean, I, I think Dustin Poirier would have taken that spot if Poirier had beaten Oliveira, but obviously he didn't. So, Usman, my fighter of the year for 2021. Uh, fight of the year, maybe a bit of a cop-out, but I came up, I ultimately wound up on a on a draw. Um, it was just between Corey Sandhagen and Peter Yan and Gaethje and Michael Chandler. They're just, they're two sides of the same coin. Both use the same things as the other one, just they lean different ways. Both fighters require good technique. Both fights, Yan and Sterling lean heavier into technique and micro adjustments. Both fighters, both fights show violence and heart. Gaethje and Chandler leans a lot heavier onto into that. Uh, those two fights combined show everything I love about the sport of mixed martial arts, and I just ultimately couldn't quite draw a line of distinction between the two. They're both phenomenal, phenomenal fights for different reasons that between the two of them kind of encompass all of the wonderful, violent, exciting uh, chaos that is mixed martial arts. So I think that's all I do for... Yeah, that was all the awards that I give out. I mean, if I gave out a round of the year... Jeez, that's a tough one between the first round of Gaethje Chandler and the third round of Volkanovski Ortega. Um, I don't separate male and female for fighter of the year. Um, some people do, I don't. So, yeah, that, again, that, that's just kind of my look back at that. Uh, 2021 was a, again, it was a great year for MMA all around. So, uh, to anyone who's read that, or if you want to read it and then see my more in-depth thoughts on some of those things, please do give those lists. You guys will see the full list. I mean, I, I went over the winners here, not the whole things. Uh, yeah. So, that's it for that. Let's go ahead and move on to, let's talk some fight announcements, yeah? So, the big one that was announced recently, and then fell apart almost as fast, uh, the UFC announced a featherweight title fight, a trilogy fight between Alexander Volkanovsky and Max Holloway for the featherweight title. Uh, this would have been the third fight between the two of them. Holloway had lost both of them, and some people, this led to some, uh, this would have been one of the very few times where a fighter comes into a trilogy fight down 0-2. Not the only time, but one of the few times. Um, I can't, not Big Nog, because technically the second fight with Fedor was a no contest. Uh, you know, other examples, um, Vanderlei Silva and Quentin Rampage Jackson. Uh, Silva had beaten Rampage twice by stoppage and pride that when they fought in the UFC, uh, uh, Rampage won. Technically speaking, the third fight between Tito Ortiz and... <laughs> third fight between Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell. 
Now, I know the third fight didn't take place in the UFC, but it's still a trilogy. That, And if I'm going to include Pride stuff, I'm going to include other stuff. Um, also, Tito and Ken Shamrock. Uh, Shamrock got a third fight with Ortiz based on the notion that their, their first fight was non-controversial in terms of Tito winning. The second one, the argument was the stoppage was early. Not sure I agreed with that argument, but that was the argument presented. As they rematched, Tito won again. I mean, uh, Ken at his best against Tito at his best would be an interesting fight, but they were never even close to uh, physically prime contemporaries. Uh, what was the other one? Um, God, there was another one. Uh, Frankie Edgar and BJ Penn. Uh, Edgar beat BJ Penn twice at lightweight. The first time, eh, it's a little iffy scoring. Man, phrase. I I can see the argument for Edgar winning their first fight. One judge gave Edgar all five rounds, and I don't see that at all. Second fight was not close. Edgar won handily. Third fight, Edgar stopped him. That was also down at featherweight and years later, but it doesn't happen all that often. And I think this might have been the first time when it came to title fights that we'd had that scenario. Uh, I said this on Twitter, and I'm going to say it here just so I don't have to repeat my... I'm going to repeat it again anyway if, if slash when this fight gets remade. That's a great fight on paper. And I'm sure it would be a very good fight in practice. I'm just a little bit burned out on those two as a fan. I love both guys. I love watching them fight. I won't say a bad word about either of them in that respect. But I've seen them fight each other for 10 rounds. And I never disagreed with the decision. I, look, there are people this to this day that swear Max should have won their first fight. I don't know what those people are smoking. Uh, that first fight, competitive, I don't mean to say that it was a blowout, it was a competitive fight, but ultimately there's not really controversy about who won. Volkanovski won that fight. Their second fight is, like, flip a coin. And I, I don't say that dismissively. To me, that fight comes down to a single round, and it's the fourth. And that round is unbelievably close. Doing it live, I was 3-2 to two for Volkanovski, and that's been my scoring of it every time I've rewatched. Everybody and their, everybody and their dog lost their mind, and I get it. Max won rounds 1 and 2 more convincing. Like, he had the most punctuated moments. That's absolutely true. But... He, at most, won three of the five rounds. And even that, again, that's that comes down to one round. I just, I don't know that I need to see those two fight again. I mean, I don't get... On the one hand, I would love to, because they're so good, right? Who could object to that? On the other, I've got a bit of rematch fatigue with those two. So... It, that that's just where I am at the moment. I, If the fight had held together, it didn't. It fell apart a little bit later, like a couple of days, uh, after Max re-aggravated some kind of injury. So, 
now the UFC is looking for a replacement. There's a bunch of options. Um, Yara Rodriguez is making noise despite coming off of a loss. The Korean Zombie's making noise. Uh, that seems to be the way Volkanovski might be leaning. Uh, Henry Cejudo did his usual stupidity on Twitter. Uh, you know, I might be the only person in my position who's not interested in that fight. In a Cejudo Volkanovski fight. I might be. Most people in my position, you know, they, those of us who kind of talk about this, who try to break down a little bit some of the technique and whatnot, they want to see Cejudo and Volkanovski fight. They want to see Henry Cejudo back. And I. I just. I, I don't care if he does or not. Uh. I, I just I don't care if Henry Cejudo ever fights in the UFC again, at all. I'm I'm just I'm just not interested in that fight. I mean I hate to say that Cejudo can't win it. That would be a gross underselling of what Henry Cejudo is capable of as an athlete and a fighter. But that's such a bad matchup for him. <laughs> I mean that that would be one of the few times when Volkanovski's the bigger fighter. And if you look at what he does having to fight against a bunch of people larger than him, him being able to fight from a position of tactical advantage by way of length and size, I, uh, I'm i just, I'm not interested. I'm not interested as a fan in that at all. Um, I've not been interested in Cejudo for a while. And look, this is not me saying he shouldn't be paid more, because that's, that was one of the reasons he left, was he wanted more money. He should get more money. They should all, all. Every fighter in the UFC should get more money. That's not a. I've made my stance on that perfectly clear. Uh, but as a fan, personally, just I don't know. Uh, I just he never really resonated with me. On any number of levels. So, if he stays retired, I don't care. Uh, but anyway, he's one of the ones who kind of threw his hat out there, like, I'll do it. Um, a lot of people came out of the woodwork, predictably, in the wake of Max... Now, current reporting seems to indicate everyone's leaning towards the Korean zombie. Uh, they might have to... This was originally supposed to take place at UFC 272. That might get shuffled now, depending on what happens. And as I mentioned when talking about Giga Chikadze and uh, Calvin Cater... Those two, uh, Chikadze in particular, if he gets an emphatic win and is able to come out healthy, they might turn him around quick. Um, that's a real possibility. And Giga Chikadze against Volkanovski is a, is every, that might be a more deserving fight than the Korean Zombie. Uh, now, Cater might win and make that whole thing a moot point. Chikadze might win, but it's a war, and he's not available on a reasonable time frame. Who knows? But that that's another iron in that particular fire. So at the moment, we don't quite have a replacement for Max in the aftermath of that fight, but there's a lot of names being bandied about. I imagine we'll have someone soon enough. Uh, the co-main event for that pay-per-view, UFC 272, <clears throat> pardon me, a rematch for the bantamweight title between Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling. I've just got to say this. Um, 
the announcement, well, like the, the graphic that the ESPN MMA account put up and a lot of other like, ESPN-related outlets, showed uh, Piotr Jan with his title belt. He's the interim champion, but not a picture of Aljamain Sterling with the belt. Whereas Sterling is the champion. Now, I've said before, I think he's a bit of a paper champion through no fault of his own. But until he actually, def- he needs to defend that thing to legitimize his title, uh, his claim to the title, more than just about anybody else. Like, I've never, I do not subscribe to the notion that you're not a champion until you defend the belt. That is, uh, that is a bit of, I don't know, mysticism. It's not quite mysticism, but you know, one of those, like, just, it's a bit of nonsense. You win the belt, you're the champion. Period. The context behind Sterling's title win kind of makes it so he's in a different position. Um, uh, so that fight is still is currently on the books. We'll see if that holds up until the pay-per-view event. I favored Jan the first time. I favor Jan the second time. I think Piotr Jan is the best bantamweight in the world. And that's not to say there aren't bantamweights who could give him a run for his money. Sterling's a very talented fighter. You know, there's some good, there's some very good bantamweights in Bellator. Uh, some very good bantamweights in Bellator, actually. And there's other guys in the UFC. I mean, Corey Sandhagen gave Jan a couple of tough rounds. You know, it's it, it's not like he is this mythical, unbeatable figure with leagues between him and his next viable contender. But I do think he's the best bantamweight. So that fight's still on. A couple of other fights for... Uh, I don't think any of these are main events. One of them might be. We'll have the Battle of the Raphaels. Uh, Raphael Fiziev will fight... Fiziev? I forget how he pronounces it. It's weird. I've heard that one pronounced both ways so many times, I'm not sure which is correct. Uh, Raphael Fiziev and uh, Rafael Dos Anjos are scheduled to fight. You know, guys, I've said this before about Dos Anjos. RDA is one of those all-time greats who will be forgotten in every discussion of all-time greats. Uh, his lightweight run will be overshadowed by Khabib's and Connor's. But he, at one point... Uh, uh, Jeff Harris would give me a lot of good-natured grief about something I said about RDA on this show. I said... There was a point in time when if RDA had a couple of win, very specific wins, I thought, uh, that he would have been the best lightweight ever. Uh, this was when he was champion. He'd already def- he defended the belt once. He had a defense. Yeah, he beat Cerrone. I said in the aftermath of that, if he's able to defend the belt again and then beat Khabib who was not champion at the time, was just undefeated, and the guy we all thought was, you know, certainly a championship-level fighter, that setting the record for most successful lightweight title defenses combined with his overall run, with a couple of other key wins, if he'd beaten, you know, Tony and and, uh, Khabib, just by ways of example, I thought he would have been the best lightweight ever. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. He got stopped by, if he'd beaten, I mean, Eddie Alvarez was kind of the big spanner in the works there. But I thought if he beat Eddie, that would have been his second title defense. So one more title defense uh, against 
It would have been against Connor because that's how the cookie crumbled, but hypothetically, against anyone and then beating one of those big, unstoppable rising forces like a Tony Ferguson or a Khabib Nurmagomedov. I mean, if we hop over to that world where that's reality, now I understand that's not our reality, but he'd be the best lightweight ever. I don't think that would be much of a discussion. Uh, Obviously, that didn't happen. Eddie Alvarez stopped him to become the champion. But Dos Santos is one of those guys who... uh, Who did I liken him to in the boxing scene? He's someone like an Ezard Charles. uh, Or, to a lesser extent, in some respects, a Jersey Joe Walcott. Um, Ezard Charles is one of those guys who, if you talk to anyone who knows boxing, holds in very, very high regard. But if you get out of, like, the deep boxing circles, you say Ezra Charles is one of the all-time greats, people cock their head at you. Like, who? Which is a shame because of how... Uh, I mean, look, if you want to understand a little bit about how good Ezra Charles was, um, when he was the primary defensive subject of tape study for James Tony when Tony was coming up. So, Ezra Charles was a, is an all-time great boxer. He's maybe the best light heavyweight back when the divisions were a little bit different ever. And he never held a belt in that weight class, partially because Archie Moore wouldn't fight him. And he's one of the best heavyweights ever in boxing history. Uh, Again, certainly when you go back to uh, uh, when the weight classes were slightly different. Uh, Based on his technique and whatnot, he's just, he was an exceptional boxer. And he just gets forgotten. I think RDA is a little bit like that. Uh, But point being... We need to give Rafael dos Anjos a metric ton of credit for just fighting everybody, including a bunch of matchups that are horrible for him stylistically. I mean, this guy has fought... I mean, he's fought a bunch of fence wrestlers in a row. Uh, which is a horrible stylistic matchup for him. Uh, he fought Islam Makashev recently, didn't he? No, he was supposed to. But, I mean, he fought Colby Covington and Kamaru Usman, both of whom did that to him. He fought Leon Edwards, who did a lot of that to him. He fought Michael Chiesa, who did most of that to him. Um, was he supposed to fight Makashev and that fell apart? I mean, his fight with Paul Felder uh, was a darn good fight in 2020. It wasn't enough to, you know, make a, a, the best of list, but it was a darn good fight. Uh, partially because 2020 was a year of great fights. Uh, yeah, he was yeah, he was supposed to fight Makashev uh, last year. Uh, Dan Hooker stepped in to replace him. So th- this guy will fight anybody. He's a bit long in the tooth. He's, you know... Uh, just a, a guy who is perpetually forgotten about, but who is a great, great fighter, and who, one of the quintessential pressure fighters. You look at his run-up to the lightweight title, and his title win in particular, watch how he pressures people, and how he breaks them down with that. It's great. Uh, now he's willing to fight, you know, another killer. I hate to use that phrase, but you know, Rafael Fazayev is one of those guys that nobody really wants to fight. Uh, the first guy in a while who won't just try to fence wrestle Rafael Dos Anjos. So. Uh, 
It's a good fight. It's a really good fight. So uh, that will take place. I forget exactly when, but uh, some point in the near in the first quarter or so. And we have a heavyweight fight between Derek Lewis and Tai Tuivasa, and of course we do. Just, of course we do. Hope it ends fast. That's all I have to say about that. So we're getting some fight announcements as the year starts to fill up, so we'll try to keep you abreast of what's going on there. Okay, let's move on to... I. <laughs> I hate talking about this in some respects, but I also, it amuses me too much to completely ignore it as much as I should. So, in the aftermath of Jake Paul knocking out Tyron Woodley, um, he got into a Twitter beef with Dana White, uh, a little bit of a spat. I mean, they're acrimonious no matter what, but one of the things that was said... Um, Dana White said, because Jake accused Dana White of uh, using cocaine. Now, I have no evidence about the, uh, about what I'm about to say, and I'm going to phrase it very, very carefully. If Dana White has never in his life tried cocaine, I would be gobsmacked. Like, there's just no way. I'm not calling him an addict. I don't think he uses currently. I mean, I, I can't even really say that. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I'm not accusing him of anything. I would just be very shocked if someone in his position, living the lifestyle that he lives, and I don't say that to cast too much judgment, I'm not damning the man to hell or anything, but if he's never tried it, I would be shocked. Just absolutely shocked. But he And Dana White's response was, tell you what, you let me drug test you randomly for two years, and I'll take cocaine drug tests for ten years. Now, the <laughs> Jake responded a little bit with something along the lines of, tell you what, here's a deal for you. I will retire from boxing, I will come over to MMA for you, and I will fight Jorge Masvidal. If you do a bunch of these things. Um, the most important, he want, uh, most of this is geared around fighter pay. He wants a, a 50% rev split for the fighters. Uh, he, he made this list of, like, ridiculous demands that the UFC will never in a million years acquiesce to, uh, courtesy of social media pressure. If not, uh, they might if certain other conditions were in place, but Jake Paul tweeting, you know, you should pay your fighters better means nothing to the UFC, uh, in any sort of real actionable capacity. Uh, was that and... Let me pull up the real list. I, I sh should have this here somewhere. Uh, here it is. Okay. So he wants uh, the minimum contract to fight in the UFC to be bumped from 12K. Most most fighters right now, um, if you come into the UFC, especially if you come in from like the Contender Series, you get a 12 and 12 split. 12 to show, 12 to win. Uh, he would he wants the minimum fighter pay per fight increase to 50k. Uh, guarantee fighters 50% in the annual revenue. So again, stuff like the ESPN deal and whatnot. Provide long-term health cares. Uh, and then he closes this particular statement with you know to all UFC fighters take a stand. You know you deserve higher pay, you deserve long care, long-term health care, and you deserve uh, freedom from the, some of the UFC's contract structures. I assume. 
It's time to support. You should support each other. I'm not your enemy. I'm your advocate who just selfishly wants to KO a few of you for Big Bank. I am not a Jake Paul advocate in any kind of real way. I that doesn't mean he's wrong in what he's saying here. So Dana responded by saying, "You never actually responded to my challenge and whatnot." Did one of his little tirade videos, and then Jake Paul cut it up and responded to it in a hilarious way. I mean, there's an art form to to what Jake Paul does that <laughs> needs to be acknowledged. Uh, he uh, again, it's mostly a troll job, but he does raise a few points. He he brings up that he's about he's allowed to say the things that he is to Dana White because including the true things because he is he doesn't need Dana White. And that's true. Fighters are not going to take the UFC to task in any kind of real way while they're under contract especially because the negative consequences are too severe. Uh the MMA media machine they're not quite as lapdoggy as they were 10 years ago, give or take, like 8, 10 years ago. It was bad. Uh, it's not quite that, but, you know, who really presses the UFC in a media perspective, right? You know, who, who does the UFC brass when they give interviews at all? Who do they talk to? They talk to very kind of softball friendly outlets or reporters. Uh, I mean, UFC, even just ESPN in particular, you know, Dana White has the people that he's willing to talk to and the ones he isn't at this point in time. So they're not held to task in sort of the court of public opinion like that in any kind of real way. Uh, what was the other thing that got brought up there? Oh, yeah, like one of Jake Paul's financial advisors or managers at this point is a guy who used to be the CFO for Zufa, for the UFC, pre-buyout. In fact, he's the one who helped organize the buyout. I uh, wonder what the bad blood is there between J uh, Dana White and that guy, because they went back and forth a little bit. Um, here's the thing about this from Jake Paul. Well, let me start with the reality here uh, in some respects. Is Jake Paul doing this for selfish reasons? Yeah. He's pushing this button because it draws attention and it gets a reaction. Look, there are things you can say about the UFC and about Dana White that will not provoke a response. You can say some pretty horrible things about them in some respects, and it's even a big... Even someone with a big social media footprint like Jake Paul, and whatever else you want to say about the man, he does have that... It, it it doesn't make waves. And part of the reason he's beating the fighter pay drum is, one, he's in the right. There's, this is unambiguous. There is, this has been said by a lot of other people. I'm going to repeat it. There is no debate around fighter pay in the UFC. We know what they pay. We know the number. It's done. They pay the fighters. They want fighter expenses to be less than 20% of yearly revenue. That's it. Now, that might go up in terms of real numbers if the UFC has a really good year, and it does on occasion, but in terms of what does the UFC bring in, they pay the fighters, and some of how they calculate fighter compensation is wonky. 
This is one of the things I'm not, this is one of the reasons I'm not sure that, you know, everyone throws the 20% number because that's what's in the court documents. Anytime someone from the UFC is under oath where there's legal penalties, hey, what do you pay your fighters? We keep fighters, pay at 20% of revenue stream, right around there. Because if they lie under oath, then there's real problems. So this is undisputed. You can listen to what a UFC talking head says when there's no consequence to lying, or you can listen to what the people who knows have to say when they're under oath. There, there's no, there's no debate here. So Jake Paul gets to uh, somewhat unambiguously be in the right, and it's a button that gets the UFC gets Dana White's dander up because he doesn't want to have this conversation. He doesn't want to pay the fighters anymore. I, I say he in this case him as a representative of the UFC machine, right? And I don't know him personally at all. I've never met the man, never shared a, anything approximating a conversation with him. So I I don't know what his stance is. I'm saying, again, I'm using him as a representative for the UFC here. And so Jake Paul is doing this for selfish reasons. He's doing it because it will get a rise out of Dana White. It absolutely does every time he does it. And it will increase his uh, you know, his ability to kind of troll the MMA community and whatnot. Here's kind of the flip side to this. One, Dana White should not respond to anything this guy does. And I don't mean that to say I I think you know Jake Paul is a tr- is some sort of odious personality who deserves to be banned from life. I mean, if you're Dana White, this is not a fight you can win. You can release your video where you go all fire and brimstone and try to tear the guy down, and what's he going to do? He's going to recut it, and he's going to respond to you, and he's going to make you look like an idiot. This is what Jake... Look, Dana White's media savviness hit kind of a capstone uh, a little bit ago. I forget ex- I, I, I don't want to put a date on it specifically because I'm not quite sure what it is. But if you've been around as long as I have, and again, I'm pretty sure some of you might have been around longer than I have, you'll remember when Dana White would go on the tirades, when you could ask him a question about another promoter or something like that, and he would... He would go off. He would cut a pro wrestling style promo, like an 80s style promo. Uh, wasn't it, it wasn't an every week occurrence, but it wasn't uncommon. That style of presentation works okay before people who are good about f- fighting back in short clips and really good about video manipulation. Or, and that's kind of what the Pauls do, right? I mean, this is their job. They make YouTube content, first and foremost. That's their job. So anytime you respond to him, he's going to find a way to... You're, you're giving him ammunition. This is not a winning fight. You getting on... Dana White going on a Twitter tirade or get, uh, you know, recording a video rampage against him... All you're doing is giving him ammunition. You are handing him a club to beat you with. But Dana White also can't really help himself because it's kind of the nature of who he is. So, 
that gets so that happened and here's the other thing that I think needs to be brought up and this is an this is an important thing there's some people out there that seem to think that Jake Paul is having an an impact on this and the reality is he's not look no one there, there's we have to approach this carefully from two different points first point well, let's be absolutely clear about this the only thing that is going to change the fighter pay system in the UFC is legislation or a collective bargaining power from the UFC. Like, that's it. Nothing else is going to change it. No one fighter is going to make so much money that they break through the 20% barrier. No. No. If, if Conor McGregor couldn't do it, and he didn't, it seems unreasonable that anyone is going to. It's the fighters getting together and, you know, again, forming some kind of a collective bargaining system or it's legislation at the state and federal level. That's it. That is it. Anything else talking about it is just kind of that. It's talk. It's either strict reporting or someone, uh, sure, someone like me who occasionally winds up going on a bit of a tirade to purge it from my system, maybe educate uh, anyone listening a little bit, and mostly it comes up if it's occasionally in the news. Well, no one, so that said, no one has done, no one has shined a brighter light on it than Jake Paul, because that guy's a spotlight. Look, there are some very good reporters who are digging through the court documents. I mean, John Nash uh, at Twitter at HeyNotTheFace is an essential follow if you want to know some of the ins and outs of this. And that court case, by the way, is one of the few things that might force real actionable change. So if you're inter if you're actually interested in fighter pay, pay attention to that. Not, you know, Jake Paul's troll videos. Uh, but... Anyone talking about fighter pay, and I know this because I've seen some of the numbers from when I've talked about it, people's eyes glaze over. They they don't really, they just don't care. That's a weird thing about the audience and the fan base, but it, it, it's both it's true in both a good and a bad way. Um, you know, the the fans don't care that the fighters are getting screwed financially. Uh. Which is weird, because they pretend to care about other things that they don't actually care about. But it's the same with, you know, the drug testing situation in any other major sport, you know, the NBA or the NHL or whatnot, right? The NBA came to an agreement between the league and the Players Association about what's the, what, what are our drug testing parameters going to be. And everyone agreed, and nobody cared. Right? The fans don't care about performance-enhancing drugs in basketball. Why? Because the players and the league, who are the only two people with actual skin in that particular game, came to an agreement about what they thought was acceptable. And the fans decided, if you agree to what's acceptable, we don't care, we like watching basketball. The, uh, the faux moral panic that goes on in some of these organized sports boggles my mind. Uh, I mean, how much cognitive dissonance do you have to have to pretend to care about, you know, 
Barry Bonds being a clean athlete. Who cares? I mean, really? Ugh. But that's a whole other discussion, um, which I've aired my uh, issues with as well. But the reason I think Jake Paul is somewhat, we can't really ignore him in this case, is there's another way. Look, you're only going to, I said, you're only going to get this through legislation. Uh, so that's either, you know, something from the federal government, a legal ruling by a judge. That Those are both legislative in the sense that they would become law. Or a collective bargaining agreement from the fighters. Like, like that That's kind of it. Here's where someone like Jake Paul in an ancillary fashion can matter to this discussion. Jake Paul's profile reaches people who don't care about MMA. And if some aid or... Uh, um, what's the word? I can't say like cabinet official, because that's not the right word. Uh, the cabinet's a very specific position. But again, if an aide or someone else who works in the office of a relatively influential politician on any level takes a look at this because they heard Jake Paul talk about it, and they take it to someone who can force actionable uh, material through, you know, again, does Jake Paul get credit for that? Well... No, but also, you know, kind of, he's just, he's just a big, big spotlight. And sometimes people who, sometimes that is, sometimes that gets to people who actually matter. Maybe in roundabout ways, but it, it's worth noting that that does happen. Uh Look, is Jake Paul tweeting going to inspire any one-to-one kind of change? No, it's Twitter. Twitter doesn't matter. But if Jake Paul banging that drum gets heard by someone who maybe has the ear of someone who does have influence, uh, that can happen. So that's part of the reason I'm surprised the UFC, Dana White in particular, is engaging with this guy at all. You don't want this kind of scrutiny as you're posting record returns and fighters are still begging for post-fight bonuses. You, I mean, you have the idiots who try to pretend that these people are well compensated and I, I don't have time for you people. No, somebody won 12, somebody, you know, on a 12 and 12 contract won. They got $24,000. They did not get $24,000. Uh, I I want to shake these people sometimes because you, you who do you think first of all you have taxes and depending on what what state you fight in those can be pretty high you uh, you then have to pay your managers then there's all the training guys I I hate to break this to you but fighters pay to train at whatever you want to go down to. Pick a gym, right? Pick American Top Team. I don't care. I don't care which one you pick. Go ask the the people at American Top Team how much it costs to train with them. And they'll tell you, here's our... Um, I, because I imagine ATT has a kind of casual set of classes, absent the purely competitive ones. 
But you can do this with any gym. You know, they, uh, go to AKA. Ask them how much it costs. This is easily discoverable information. Fighters pay to train with their coaches. Fighters pay their nutritionists. Fighters, like, there's all this stuff that they have to pay for. Was it Greg, Har uh, Greg Hardy? Was it Dan Hardy said? Like, Dan Hardy tweeted a while ago about how much he actually took home from his fight with GSP. Like, which was a title fight, one of the most successful pay-per-views of that year. Hang on, let me see if we can find it. I peruse Twitter. Okay, yeah, here it is. Yeah, Dan Hardy walked away from his title fight with George St. Pierre with $24,000 when it was all said and done. You think the guys they got coming in now are, like, I, I'm sorry, you're an idiot. If your stance is that these people are well compensated, you're an idiot. You are drinking the Kool-Aid of a machine. That's all you're doing. That's all you're doing in that respect. Uh, so, point being, Dana White giving fuel to this particular fire at a time when they should be trying to diminish that. That court case is still ongoing. Uh, and that will be something to watch. Look, man, Dana White playing into the politics a little bit with his kind of uh, glad-handing with Donald Trump, former president. Uh, if the wrong side of the... I said the wrong side of the aisle, because there's no right or wrong side of the aisle, necessarily. Um, you can have whatever opinion you want about individuals on either side of the American political spectrum. The reality is there's a perfectly valid ethical moral argument for falling a for falling reasonably on either side of the mythical center line. But if people opposed to Dana White's association with Donald Trump decided to get a bug up their ass, uh, <laughs> not going to swear, got a bee in their bonnet about this and wanted to make a bit of hay out of it, that opportunity exists. So it just seems odd that the UFC would be willing to aid Jake Paul in shining that particular light. But anyway, Dana White being trolled by Jake Paul will also—that's almost always going to be funny to me. Like I watched Jake Paul's re response video to Dana White, <laughs> uh, where he had again—he chopped up part of Dana White's response video. Dana White's video. He'd cut it together so it sounds like Dana White says I use cocaine, and then just badly put a wine of light powder under one of his nostrils. <laughs> I mean, it's deliberately bad. Uh, I listened to his... I watched his response to that. I laughed. It amused me. I, I'm slightly embarrassed by that in some respects, because most of what... Look, most of what either of the Paul brothers does does not amuse me. It makes me want to punch myself in the throat half the time. Uh, to the extent that I watch any of it. Mo look, here... I don't follow either of them on Twitter or YouTube. I don't care. Um, Logan Paul showed up for a pro wrestling uh, kind of tie-in a little bit, and he was on SmackDown, which I cover, and it just made me want to die. But I'm not going to pretend that some of the stuff he that they do isn't funny on occasion. Like I don't know what their ratio is. I have to go through all their content. I'm not going to do that to myself. This one, I laughed. It was funny. Like, don't know what else to tell you. So, we'll keep an eye on that. That might blow up a little bit more uh, as things continue. 
Uh, let's see, last bit of news I have here, then I will check Twitter for breaking news, and then we will get out of here. Uh, the UFC hiked up prices. Pay-per-views for this coming year will be... Uh, did they get up to 75? Uh, yeah, yeah, 75, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, that's a $10 price hike in three years, I think. So, yeah. UFC going to milk their machine, going to fleece their fan base even more now. And fighters will see none of it. <laughs> I shouldn't say none. It's not a strict none, but... Guys, you're not getting more than 20%. And I mentioned this before. Here's the reason I take issue with the 20% number. If you really break into it, some of the stuff they count as fighter compensation is dubious. Like, they count paying for USADA as fighter compensation. Like, really? I wouldn't be shocked if they count the construction and upkeep of the performance institutes as part of fighter compensation. There's a slightly better argument that that is fighter compensation, given that it's open to all fighters. But, uh, I, I wouldn't I would not consider that part of fighter compensation, personally. So it's one of the reasons I tend to think that number, if we break down what they what all falls under fighter compensation, might actually be lower than 20%, maybe a little bit closer to 15 So UFC's charging everybody 75 bucks a pay-per-view now. Uh, remember like five years ago when Dana White said they'd never increase their prices? Yeah, but I'm sure he's being honest when he says, you know, that fighters are well compensated. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, my bitterness on occasion at that whole thing just comes out of me in weird ways. Alright, uh, that's all the news I have at the moment, so let me check Twitter, and if not, if nothing is broken, we will do plugs and get out of here. Okay, nothing crazy in the MMA world is broken while we've been recording. Uh, I can't really call this breaking because it happened earlier, but... Uh, News did come out not too long before we started recording about Bob Saget passing away at the age of 65. Uh, that sucks, man. Uh, a lot of fond memories of watching him as host of America's Funniest Home Videos. Uh, it was a staple of weekly watching, especially over the summer when I would go uh, stay with my grandparents for a couple of weeks out of the year. Uh, yeah, that sucks, man. It's too young. I mean, 65 is a bit too young. You know, uh, awful. Uh, okay, as for my plugs, uh, let's see what we got here. Last week, there was a two-part Damn You Hollywood. Mark Radlich and I got together to talk Don't Look Up, as well as Being the Ricardos, both of which are a bit more award-style films, so we talked the two of them together. They're both streaming. One on uh, Don't Look Up is on Netflix, Being the Ricardos is on Amazon Prime. We were mostly complimentary, some constructive criticism, but that uh, we had a good time talking about those two movies, so feel free to give that a listen if you're so inclined. Over on Damn You Hollywood, this week there will be a Damn You Hollywood for the 355. The latest, and apparently not greatest, attempt to get some kind of female-led action franchise off the ground. <laughs> Uh, Mark's already seen it, I haven't. I will, of course, watch it before I review it. 
but we will give that particular film the full Damn You Hollywood treatment on Tuesday. Uh, and I will be, I believe, I am part of the Witcher TV party on Thursday. Uh, 90% sure. If not, there's a TV party for The Witcher over on the Rattletion Broadcasting Network on Thursday. You should listen to it. So I think I'll be on that. That will be uh, going live at 8 p.m. my time, so 10 p.m. Eastern uh, Thursday. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, next week, we will be back here to review UFC on ESPN 32 and preview UFC 270, the big heavyweight title fight between Francis Ngannou and Cyril Gan. Uh, also on that card... A flyweight title fight, the trilogy fight between Brandon Moreno and Davis and Figueredo. Uh, God, Greg Hardy and Alexi Olenek. Why? Um, Adolfo Vieja and Wellington Terman might turn out to... That could be some fun grappling. So we'll have a full preview of that event next week, so come back, get my thoughts on everything. There's some good fights there. Movsor Avroyev and uh, Ilya Tapori is a darn good fight, actually. So, we'll have the full breakdown for you next week, of course, and we'll preview that, as well as talk about whatever other news and other craziness happens in the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Until next time, I thank you very much for interacting with the product. Give it a like, comment, subscribe, write a review, give us a star rating, whatever's appropriate for the podcast platform of your choosing. Please interact with it a little bit. Thank you very much. Glad we're all here in 2022, and I will see you next week. Until then, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.